So today we conclude our series on evangelical anti-intellectualism. And if you've been with me this far, I want to congratulate you for your endurance. You have thought about things over the course of this series that very few in the Christian community will ever think about. So you should feel proud. And in many ways, what we've been examining throughout this series has been somewhat depressing. We've looked at the abandonment of the Puritan mind and the rise of anti-intellectualism in the American church, the flight of evangelicals from the American university and the fundamentalist movement, the moral and intellectual degradation of our society and our culture, the various crises that are facing the church today as a result, at least in part, of her anti-intellectualist tendencies, and ways in which some believers even use the Bible to discourage other believers from intellectual pursuit. So I'd like to finish this series with some good news, with some hope. What we're going to do here is consider some events and movements that have occurred over the last 50 years or so, events that serve as flashpoints of hope, insofar as they're examples of the evangelical mind in action, in ways that have had significant and lasting impact. So we're going to end this series with some promising indications that the evangelical mind may be making a comeback. As we've seen in an earlier episode, one of the great tragedies of the fundamentalist movement at the turn of the 20th century was the near-complete abandonment of the universities. Many evangelical scholars retreated from the nation's foremost colleges in response to the naturalist takeover that was occurring at the time. And the result was a near-total loss of Protestant evangelical influence in higher education. And when you consider that the movers and shakers of society are themselves the products of our institutions of higher learning, the result has been a near total loss of the evangelical influence on the culture at large. And one dramatic example of the total takeover of a secular worldview in the American university was in the field of philosophy. As the 20th century rolled on, philosophy departments across the nation began to adopt a radical form of philosophical empiricism, an ideology that judged all discourse about God to be nonsense. This logical positivism, as it was called, was more extreme than your garden variety atheism. Whereas atheists at least entertain the claim of God's existence, while of course denying its truth, the logical positivists denied that the very idea of God was meaningful, and therefore it was beyond the pale of rational discourse. And as a result, God talk was dead in the American university. And as is always the case, what began, to, what began as an idea in the university soon spilled over into the wider culture, even affecting theology which in turn created the so-called death of God movement among some Protestant theologians. 
This low point of Christian influence at an institutional level was dramatically illustrated by the famous 1966 Time magazine cover, which asked, is God dead? At least in the realm of academic discourse, the answer was a resounding yes. However, almost just as soon as it was declared dead, the idea that there may be a God who could be known and talked about was dramatically revived as a rational and serious question for academic consideration. This rapid reversal in academia over the question of God's existence is nicely represented by another Time magazine cover, this one just three years later in 1969, which asks, is God coming back to life? So what happened in the three years that separated these two Time covers? Well, what happened was a philosophical revival of Christian theism in the American university. After decades of academic setback, and, and almost overnight, God was making a comeback in the philosophy departments of our universities across the English-speaking West. And this philosophical revival of theism, which began in the 1960s, continued to grow through the 1970s, a phenomenon that once more caught the attention of Time magazine, who ran a story in 1980 titled Modernizing the Case for God, in which they wrote, quote, in a quiet revolution in thought and argument that hardly anybody could have foreseen only two decades ago, God is making a comeback. Most intriguingly, this is happening not among theologians or ordinary believers, but in the crisp intellectual circles of academic philosophers, where the consensus had long banished the Almighty from fruitful discourse. The primary figure who led the way in this philosophical revival was the Dutch Reformed thinker, Elvin Plantica. Plantica is a first-rate scholar, blessed with an insightful mind, and he's an evangelical. Plantica taught at Kelvin College before accepting a prestigious appointment as professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. His philosophical writings have been prodigious, and in many respects, innovative, and he has had a massive impact in the field. Whether they agreed with him or not, professional philosophers had to reckon with his ideas. They simply could not be ignored. Plantica is consistently ranked as one of the most influential philosophers of the last 50 years, and he's received many honors and high praise from the academic community. In 2017, he received the honor of winning the prestigious Templeton Prize for his achievements in philosophy. The Templeton organization wrote, quote, Elvin Plantico is an American philosopher whose rigorous scholarship over a half century has made theism, the belief in a divine reality or God, a serious option within the academy, end quote. So because of the work of Plantica, along with some other Protestant thinkers, there has been a remarkable resurgence of theism, and especially Christian theism, in the philosophy departments of universities across the Anglo-American world. William Lane Craig, who is himself a foremost evangelical Christian philosopher, writes, quote, Since the late 1960s, Christian philosophers have been coming out of the closet and defending the truth of the Christian worldview with philosophically sophisticated arguments in the finest scholarly journals and professional societies. At the same time that theologians were writing God's obituary, a new generation of philosophers was rediscovering his vitality. 
and the face of Anglo-American philosophy has been transformed as a result, end quote. And this revival has not gone unnoticed by the academic community. Craig goes on to quote the prominent atheist philosopher Quentin Smith, who laments the rise of theism in the academy in, in a 2001 article he published in a secular academic journal. Smith writes, quote, By the second half of the 20th century, universities had become, in the main, secularized. The standard position in each field assumed or involved arguments for a naturalist worldview. But then Smith says that everything began to change. Naturalists passively watched as realist versions of theism, most influenced by Plantinga's writings, began to sweep through the philosophical community. Until today, perhaps one quarter or one third of philosophy professors are theists, with most being Orthodox Christians. In philosophy, it became almost overnight academically respectable to argue for theism, making philosophy a favored field of entry for the most intelligent and talented theists entering the academy today. He concludes, God is not dead in academia. He returned to life in the late 1960s and is now alive and well in his last academic stronghold, philosophy departments, end quote. This resurgence of theism was so profound that it spawned a new academic discipline called the philosophy of religion, the discipline in which I myself have been trained. Today, the renaissance of Christian philosophy is still flourishing, as there are a good many professional philosophers defending the rationality of Christianity at the academic level. And again, this revival of the belief and defense of God in the academy was largely led by Protestant evangelicals. Mark Knoll writes, quote, Christian philosophers had made their presence felt in the world of scholarship more substantially than intellectuals in any other discipline. Evangelicals made up the majority of those who participated in this resurgence of Christian philosophy, end quote. Now, unfortunately, the importance of this revival of Christian philosophy at the university is lost on most evangelical believers because most have a poor understanding about the subject of philosophy or the importance of philosophy to intellectual, intellectual endeavor of all kinds. But as Craig explains, quote, the field of philosophy is the most important domain for thought and intellect since it is foundational to every other discipline at the university. Philosophy departments are a beachhead from which operations can be launched to impact other disciplines at the University for Christ, end quote. So here we have a shining example of the kind of impact that well-cultivated evangelical intellects can have on the society at large. And I think it's a place to find hope. Hope that the evangelical church may be beginning to kind of shrug off its anti-intellectual fetters. Now, the impact of the Renaissance of Christian philosophy has gone well beyond the confines of the philosophy departments in our universities. I would argue that this Renaissance actually laid the groundwork for what has been the explosion of Christian apologetics in the 21st century. Over the last 20 years or so, the Christian Church in America has provided an army of able apologists who have defended the truth claims of the faith against external attacks, of which 
there have been many. The first decade of the 21st century witnessed the rise to prominence of the so-called New Atheists. This was a, an anti-theistic movement led by the so-called Four Horsemen of the New Atheism. There's Richard Dawkins, who is a biologist, Sam Harris, a neuroscientist, the late Christopher Hitchens, who was a journalist who passed away in 2011, and then Daniel Dennett, the only philosopher of the bunch. For several years, these guys held the attention of many in the English-speaking West, gaining many followers and even becoming celebrities, especially Dawkins and Hitchens. They produced books, they published articles, they made media appearances, they spoke at universities and conferences, and they engaged in debates. These new atheists were not content with a passive dismissal of belief in God. They wanted all religion, and especially Christianity, to be wiped away from human society. Christopher Hitchens represents the sentiment of the movement well when he wrote that he was, quote, not even an atheist so much as an anti-theist. He said, I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful, end quote. Whereas older, more classical atheists typically viewed religious belief as harmless or sometimes even a good thing for mankind overall, the new atheists have distinguished themselves by their hostility to religion. Religion, they claim, is not only wrong, it's evil. And they not only believe that religious belief is positively poisonous, they also want others to believe it too, and so they have a kind of evangelistic zeal to spread their gospel of disbelief. Now, the new athe atheism quickly began to catch on, and it began to grow rapidly. The new atheists published books that were on the bestseller list. Their public appearances were well attended, and their videos were getting millions of views online. In addition to this, Groups, clubs, organizations, and conferences were popping up all over the place in America, Canada, and in the UK. And for a time, it seemed like the new atheism was here to stay and would continue to grow in strength in numbers. Yet today, it has all but fizzled out and has lost almost all of the, all of the momentum that it once had. Why? What happened? Well, there are several reasons for the failure and decline of the movement, but without question, one of the primary factors in the demise of the new atheism was the powerful resistance that it met from a host of formidable Christian philosophers and apologists. As the new atheists began to assail the Christian faith, with passion and with vitriol, intellectually equipped Christians stood up against them, boldly defending the faith and counterstriking against the rationality of the atheistic worldview. And these apologists proved more than able to meet the challenge of the new atheism by responding with intellectual rigor, careful scholarship, and powerful arguments. Christian apologists outpublished the new atheists, eagerly 
debated them in public arena and initiated a media and social media a media and social media blitz of their own and again much of the uh, apologetical work was being done by protestant evangelical scholars and intellectuals and today the field of christian apologetics and philosophy is absolutely thriving but as i've said the new atheism is all but defunct the apologetics explosion we've witnessed over the last couple of decades didn't come out of nowhere. The groundwork for it was laid by these pioneering Christian philosophers like Elvin Plantica that we discussed a moment ago. It was their work that paved the way for thinking evangelical Christians to pursue advanced degrees in philosophy. It was their work that discipled and equipped a generation of apologists and inspired a robust Protestant response to the new atheism. At a time when it was needed the most, the Christian church was able to offer a robust and powerful rebuttal to the attack from atheism because believers were willing to offer their intellects to the service of Christ. The apologetics movement is yet another bright spot and a cause for hope that the evangelical church is waking from her anti-intellectualist coma. However, there is still a lot of work to be done. Although some ground has been retaken at the scholarly and academic level by Protestant evangelicals, so far this has had little effect at the level of the local church. It has been my uniform experience, having pastored at two different churches, that most lay believers are simply totally unaware of the work that has been done by Christian philosophers and are generally uninformed when it comes to Christian apologetics. And this is not just my observation. Many have lamented the failure of the apologetics movement to infiltrate the local church. So despite the mass of apologetic materials that are, readily, uh, that are readily available today, and there really is an embarrassment of riches here, most evangelical believers remain either totally oblivious or have only a slight awareness of the rational case that's been made for the faith. Now, why is this? Well, I think there's two reasons here. The first is that despite the renaissance of Christian engagement at the academic level, the local evangelical church in America, I think, is still gripped by a recalcitrant anti-intellectualism. I think that for the most part, the American church is being overly influenced by our idiot culture, and many evangelicals are even counted among the empty selves that populate our society. These are ideas that we examined in part four of this series, so be sure to listen to that episode if these terms are not familiar to you. So sadly, I think many believers simply lack an appetite for this kind of intellectual engagement. And many of those who have the desire lack the self-control and discipline that it takes to work through intellectually challenging material. Now, the second reason that the revival of philosophy and apologetics has generally failed to garner much attention at the level of the local church 
has to do with the education of our pastors. Although there are signs that this may be slowly changing, there are not many seminaries in America that place any kind of serious emphasis on the philosophical and apologetical training of ministers. Our seminaries do a phenomenal job equipping pastors in the art of biblical interpretation, administration, counseling, church ministry, church growth. But for the most part, they're utterly failing to equip our pastors to be able to interact with the best of Christian philosophy or to defend and argue for the faith with reason and rationality. In my experience, pastors generally do not have much of an appreciation for the need or for the importance of apologetics, not to mention philosophy, for their local congregations. Some are hostile to apologetics because they erroneously, in my opinion, believe that it is somehow unbiblical or that it exalts human reason over God and Scripture. Others are uneasy with apologetics because it's outside of their training and expertise, and therefore it's not something that they can easily manage or control. And of course, there are some who are neither hostile nor uneasy, but simply rank the value and priority of apologetics much lower than other projects and pursuits. Whatever the reasons, the irony of ironies here is that, more often than not, it is America's evangelical pastors who are preventing the renaissance of Christian intellectual engagement from spreading widely among lay believers. And if you're an evangelical pastor listening into this, I'd ask you, how much training did you receive in the areas of philosophy or apologetics during your education? Do you have a general grasp of the history and development of ideas? Can you articulate the classical and contemporary arguments for God's existence, for the resurrection of Christ, for the objectivity of moral values and duties, for the ways in which modern science is friendly to the faith, and so on? Now, I don't ask these things to shame anybody. I just think that it's time that we come to grips with the fact that we are never going to see widespread congregational engagement of these resources until evangelical pastors begin to appreciate their worth. The fact is, if we ever hope to break the spell of evangelical anti-intellectualism once and for all, it's going to have to happen at the local church. And right now, most evangelical engagement of the mind is happening among Christian scholars or within various parachurch ministries outside the context of the local church. If you're an evangelical Christian who wants to engage your intellect for Christ, the good news is that you can find almost an endless supply of resources and materials available to you today. You can do it. The bad news is that you'll probably have to do this on your own and outside of the context of your local church, of your local Christian community. The hard truth is that we are never going to see the American Evangelical Church return to that Puritan ideal of a mind on fire for Christ unless 
the leaders of our local churches come to appreciate the importance of discipling the Christian mind, discipling the Christian intellect. And unless they can themselves model what it looks like to serve God with the mind. So, as I said, I want to end this series with hope. And we've now seen some reasons to be hopeful. Let me give you just one more reason for hope in closing. You. You're here listening to me talk about this stuff. And if you've listened from the start of this series, you've been with me now for six episodes as I've discussed this problem of evangelical anti-intellectualism. And that gives me hope, hope that we can turn this around. And I hope that you'll stick with me as we continue to think deeply for Christ. And I hope that you'll pass this channel along to others who may be willing to do the same.